0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Lever Time. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the Z word. No, not Zoolander. No, not ZZ Top. We're going to be talking about Zionism, specifically liberal Zionism. Why was it ascendant? How did both Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Hamas snuff it out? How might it make a comeback? And what would that mean for the ongoing conflict in Israel and Palestine? For our paid subscribers, we're also always dropping bonus episodes into our Lever Premium podcast feed. Last week's was a fascinating discussion about how big tech companies are using all sorts of ways to steal your attention and then monetize it. If you want access to our premium content, Head over to levernews.com and click the subscribe button in the top right to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to the Lever Premium podcast feed, exclusive live events, even more in depth reporting, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Okay, let's get right to today's episode. We're going to discuss that word Zionism, that word that brings out a lot of emotions especially now as Israel's war in Gaza continues to rack up a horrifying body count. So before we get into it, I've got a few requests of you, the listener. First request, as you listen to today's episode, I want you to make sure, if you can, to listen to all of it before you send us an email, because we really go deep on this one. If you only listen to little bits and get mad and shut it off, you're going to miss that depth. A second request. If you're a first-time listener, you may already be mad at me for choosing to use this episode to discuss this particular topic rather than other topics from Israel and Palestine. But before you get angry at that, go listen to our other episodes and go read our ongoing reporting that's been holding the Israeli government accountable for its unacceptable actions in Gaza. Rest assured, we've covered and we will continue to cover All sorts of different topics relating to the situation in the Middle East. A third request. You don't have to agree with everything said in this episode. Hell, I probably don't agree with all the arguments that we discuss, all the arguments that are being made about this topic. But just because you don't agree doesn't mean you have to impugn the integrity, spirituality, and morality of the participants. We're trying to discuss this stuff earnestly, in hopes of getting to a deeper understanding at a time when warmongers are trying to ratchet up tensions and escalate all of this into World War III. A fourth and final request that I've made before. If you're an Islamophobe or an anti-Semite, please stop listening to this podcast right now and unsubscribe from our podcast feed and our newsletter. The lever doesn't want Islamophobes or anti-Semites as subscribers, regardless of how many clicks or subscriptions that may drive. We don't want you if you're an Islamophobe or an anti-Semite. Okay, so let's get into today's topic, the Z word, Zionism. Growing up as a relatively observant Reformed Jew in a Jewish community, I never thought much about or heard much mention of that word Zionism. If I heard it at all, it came up less as a clarifying description than a slur used by deranged anti-Semites in their breathless manifestos about the so-called protocols of the elders of Zion controlling the world. When used that way, the Z word is an epithet ascribing a weird, occult, deranged ideology to the belief that Israel has as much right to exist as any other country has a right to exist. The word Zionism stands out because, of course, there's not really such a word for any other country or people other than Israel or Jews. I mean, think about it. There's no Zionism label for people who, say, deeply believe the United States or England have a right to exist as self-governed countries. So on its face, Zionism, that word, it's a unique word. The problem with the word Zionism is that it means so many things to so many people. And that's a particularly huge problem, especially now, when Israel is so front and center in geopolitical news. In this moment, the Z word is being thrown around on all sides, from pro-Israel voices to anti-Israel critics, from Jews to anti-Semites. And yet this word, Zionism, is fogging up the fog of war even more, because it has so many different meanings to different speakers and different people hearing it, meanings that go way beyond a dictionary definition. There's the word Zionism in terrorist screeds demanding effectively the extermination of Jews. There's the Zionism of Benjamin Netanyahu trying to justify the immoral mass murder of Palestinians. Lost in this is what was once the most simple, clear, and dominant meaning of Zionism, liberal Zionism, the ideology at the founding of the state of Israel, the ideology that was dominant among Israelis and American Jews for decades, but that's been deliberately destroyed by both the Israeli right and by Hamas and its cheerleaders. In a must-read report for Vox, Journalist Zach Beecham asks whether the war in Gaza will ultimately result in the return of liberal Zionism. The subhead of his piece reads, quote, For many Jews, the October 7th attacks discredited both the Zionist right and the anti-Zionist left, paving the way for the resurrection of a seemingly dead political tradition. I talked to Zach about what liberal Zionism is and what differentiates it from other forms of Zionism. We discussed whether liberal Zionism will actually return to the forefront and whether that would help bring about a two-state solution or whether it would simply bring us back to this awful state of perpetual violence. And we discussed the inherent tensions in the liberal Zionist ideology, the tensions between support for a Jewish homeland and support for democracy. Hey Zach, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for thanks for doing this interview. We're going to be talking about the Z word, uh, Zionism, which in some ways feels like an epithet now. In other ways, uh, feels like a, a descriptor of a political ideology that is uh, more central uh, to uh, global politics and American politics than ever. You wrote an article in Vox, and the headline is this, The Return of Liberal Zionism. Now, there's a question mark. There's a question
1: mark. That's important. The question mark's an important part of it.
0: And the subhead is, for many Jews, the October 7th attacks discredited both the Zionist right and the anti-Zionist left, paving the way for the resurrection of a seemingly dead political tradition. So the first thing I want to ask you is, before we get into liberal Zionism, Let's start with what is meant by the term Zionism, or maybe that's not even a fair question because I think a lot of people mean a lot of different things. What, I guess, what is the the narrowest, uh, clearest, historical definition of just Zionism?
1: So Zionism in sort of the simplest sense is the belief that there should be an independent Jewish state. That's it right? It's, it's, it's no more complicated than that. Of course, getting into the details of what's meant by independent, Jewish, for example, maybe where this Jewish state should be, all turned out to be uh, extremely contentious. But the way to understand Zionism at its origins, which is different from what we say when we use Zionism today, but I think is a necessary starting point for this conversation, is basically akin to the the many different European nationalisms that were operating in the late 19th and early 20th century, Uh, these kinds of nationalisms were based on sort of a new, really, I think, relatively new sense that in addition to there being political units and entities that one might call governments, there are also cohesive peoples, right, like, let's say, Italians that deserve their own country. Right, and oftentimes this was bound up in in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries with democracy, this kind of nationalism. Right, it was a sense that not only do the let's keep going with the Italian example because it's a it's a sort of useful one. Right, not only should there be a unified Italian state, but the Italians deserve to rule themselves, not be ruled over by any kinds of. Uh, kings, nobles, aristocrats, etc. cetera, right? So this was a kind of liberal national, this was liberal nationalism. There were illiberal nationalisms and undemocratic nationalisms, but in the 19th century, especially, there was, a, there was a deep interconnection between rising liberalism, rising democracy, and rising nationalism. And early Zionism really grew out of that tradition, right? Uh, it's sort of its most famous theorist and activist is a, a Jewish journalist named Theodore Herzl, who witnessed firsthand uh, in places like Austria and France Pretty horrific, uh, anti-Semitic acts by Europeans, and came to believe that much as as modern European nationalists believe that they couldn't have their own country or their peoples deserved a right to self determination, right, separate from you know some kind of old old political order holding them back. The Jews could never really be safe unless they had their own equivalent somewhere right and and the vision very very quickly turned to what was what was understood widely as the historic jewish homeland or the biblical jewish homeland which is the land that was at the time called palestine
0: okay so you write that the term liberal zionist is scarcely used quote even by those who believe in its ideals it is more commonly deployed as a leftist slur you write against more Israel-sympathetic progressives. You're talking about how liberal Zionist, that term, is used uh, oftentimes today. So going from the, I guess, most narrow definition of Zionism that you just laid out, what do you think is meant by, implied by, uh, insinuated by, the term liberal Zionism?
1: In the way that you just referred to it, right, it is used as a pejorative for somebody who... You know, much in the same way that liberal is often used in a slur uh, in, in leftist communities in the United States as a way of being like you're kind of a sellout. You're a moderate. You don't you don't get it, right? You you are too squishy, too comfortable with the way that things are, um, and unwilling to see the radical change that's necessary for for true equality and justice, right? And so when liberal Zionist is used as a slur, as a, as a pejorative, it's used in exactly those senses. It, but it's also linked to Zionism in an important way. It's not just saying you're too conservative on the Israel-Palestine conflict. It's saying you have so bought into the myths surrounding the state of Israel, its current government, the Zionist movement historically, that you're incapable of seeing that this existing state is a settler colonial racist institution that can't be allowed to to exist, right? This is, again, the leftist perspective. I'm just sort of outlining the way that it's used. Now, the term liberal Zionism did not originally mean that, right? It sort of arose among people who were both Zionist and democratic liberal leftist minded, right? Some of these people might have been fairly described as socialists, some were conservatives, but they all shared a basic agreement that one, Israel should exist as a Jewish state, and two, it should exist as a Jewish and democratic state. Now, what did that mean, right? Because there's a lot of tension between those two things. How can you have a state that is devoted to one particular religious or ethnic group that's also a democratic state? And that's a really, really complicated question. A lot of liberal Zionism has been hashing that question out, trying to define what it means to have a state that's both meaningfully Jewish and democratic. But sort of in the late 20th century, it came to align with, broadly speaking, a push for a two-state solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict. That like the core liberal Zionist demand, there were other ones, but the most important one is a sense that there there needed to be two separate states for two separate people because a jewish democracy could not exist when it ruled under when it ruled over an arab minority without giving them rights indefinitely right this was just not a sustainable formulation especially given the demographic balance of the two groups and so either you needed to have so long as israel continued to occupy the west bank and the gaza strip you would either have some form of apartheid or you would have a one-state solution in which Israel was no longer a Jewish state because there would need to be full rights, full political rights for all the Arabs that were living there, which would probably be incompatible with the Jewish government, right? So the liberal Zionists believed that the only way to preserve a Jewish democratic state was some kind of two-state solution. Even if they didn't support some kind of peaceful agreement on universalistic moral grounds, which most of them did, they also did on pragmatic, we want Israel to exist, Zionist grounds.
0: Okay. So I I mentioned uh, on this podcast after the October 7th attack, that I, you know, was vociferously criticizing uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and we're going to get into Netanyahu and what what kind of Zionism he represents and Likud represents. But but I had said at the time, uh, just a little bit about my own background, that I grew up understanding the Israel of where there was a, a kind of social democratic tradition, the Israel of the Labor Labor Party, the Israel of Kibbutzim, uh, the Ibr- Israel essentially of, of liberal zionism a two-state solution etc etc and i think a lot of people who are not as old as i am i'm 48 years old don't necessarily remember that israel with that liberal zionist tradition so for those who don't know that history in the, I guess, the mid 20th century into the late uh, 20th century. Just tell us about how the, the rise of liberal Zionism inside of Israel, how different that is from today's Israel and, and how um, how dominant it was, by the way, also on, I think, the, in the American Jewish uh, political uh, tradition.
1: Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting, complex and, and fascinating history, right? Because it is true that the dominant faction, Right, in Israel's early days was the Labor Mapai faction, uh, which is a functionally socialist group, right? The reason that Israel has these communities called kibbutzim, which are sort of collectively operated farms, is because a very early expression of, of the Zionist vision, probably the most popular one early on, was a kind of socialistic ideal of Jews moving to a new place and creating a new world based on community and fraternity and mutual respect and collective enterprise and agriculture. and So all sort of pioneer socialism was really the way I would describe the regnant ethos of early Israel. Now, the relationship with democracy early on, like Israel has been a democracy for Jews since it existed. No, no, no question about that, even though there were some significant problems with it. So for many years, uh, labor was so dominant that elections were were not really like they were competitive. No one rigged them. But labor was so overwhelmingly popular and
0: controlled the commanding heights of, the, of Israeli
1: politics. And it wasn't like a, like a real, you know, a multi-party democracy.
0: I mean, it's kind of amazing to think about, right? I mean, that's kind of an amazing thing for people to, to that I think people don't even understand that labor, which barely exists now in Israel, was so dominant – in Israeli politics that it was almost elections were almost a kind of formality at a certain point or at least elections in terms of party elections because the labor social democratic tradition was so dominant sorry to interrupt
1: yeah no that that's that's absolutely right right and there were there were elements of it that weren't like the most democratic right the way that they maintained this power but it also never crossed the line into non-democratic kind of one party rule like I don't, I don't think there's any serious argument that's true now, when you talk about the relationship between Jews and Arabs, it's a very different story. Right. Right. So, until 1966, Arabs were kept under military rule inside Israel proper. Right. So, while they were citizens, they were not granted, this, they were not held under the same set of rights uh, that Jewish citizens of Israel were. And then, of course, after 1967, just a year later, right after the end of this military regime, Israel conquers. The territories in the Six-Day War, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and and East Jerusalem, and begins reckoning with what that means for its identity. And and I really do think liberal Zionism is something that we talk about separately from different strands of the, the, the Israeli early Zionist tradition began around that moment. The way that we talk about it today is a product of reckoning, not just with the, the perennial tension of Jewish and democratic when it comes to things like, should public service be closed on Shabbat, right? Should you be able to take a train, um, which is quite controversial inside Israel. But also, and not just the question even of the sort of roughly 20% of Arab citizens, right, about inclusion of Arabs in the polity. Uh, those are also important questions. And one of them sort of surprisingly, Israel has made some progress despite trending right politically recently. No, a lot of it, really the central question is, what do we do about all these people that we are ruling over undemocratically and have no plans to include in the polity? And I think that is, there, there's a very good reason why that's the central question of liberal Zionism. and sort of became the focal point of the movement, right, is because that was the, the existential one, the one that if you make the wrong choice, Israel ceases to exist.
0: Okay, so liberal Zionism seems to me, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but liberal Zionism, the tradition inside of Israel, it kind of peaks, it crescendos in the late 1990s with the peace process, et cetera, et cetera, where it it really does feel like in the late 90s, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but there was a perception uh, that... There was going to be some kind of two-state solution uh, with Ehud Barak and those those that peace process. Uh, even uh, uh, Omer from uh, from uh, not the Labor Party, uh, a little bit later, actually said in in one of the Conservative parties he was the Prime Minister on on his way out said uh, we need a two-state solution. So in, into the, the late 90s, into the 2000s, it seems like there was this moment where liberal Zionism in Israel. Seemed on its way to achieving uh, the vision of a two-state solution. And yet now here we are, it's 2023, uh, and it has felt like for the last 20 years that liberal Zionism has withered away in Israel. So all of that being said, what happened? Like what happened where this this political force, this political ideology in Israel and among American Jews seemed on its way to uh, to succeeding or to at least seeing its vision happen. And then now here we are where it seems like it's gone.
1: Yeah. Look, I, I want to flesh out the history a little bit more because it's, it's really important to understanding the, the premise of your question, right? So in the, in the early 1990s, what looked like liberal Zionist momentum was, was just incredibly powerful, both domestically and when it came to the Palestinians, right? In two ways, right? Ways that I think are underappreciated now. First, uh, the Knesset, uh, Israel's parliament, passed two basic laws, which are the basically the Israeli constitutional amendment equivalent, right, that transformed its jurisprudence. It basically gave the courts power to start overriding laws on the basis of them conflicting with principles of democracy and equality, right? It didn't explicitly use those, use the word equality, but the court sort of read a right of equality into it. And and one of the Supreme Court justices, uh Amnon Aharon Barak, called it a constitutional revolution revolution, right, really transformed Israel's government in a liberal direction. And at the same time, I think non-coincidentally was tremendous progress made in in the conversation with the Palestinians, right? The PLO recognizing Israel, Israel agreeing in principle to a two-state solution with the Palestinians and creating the Palestinian Authority, which is not like always existed, right, this thing that we now take for granted. It's that for a long time, uh, the Palestinians were under direct military rule by Israel, all over the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. The Palestinian Authority was created as an instrument of self-government of the Palestinians to sort of an interim state, basically, where the Palestinians could take over control of some of the territory on the way to a final status agreement that would give them a a true state. Now, that fell apart in in a few different ways. One of them is that the driving force behind the peace process, Yitzhak Rabin, Israeli prime minister, was assassinated by a Jewish extremist who opposed any kind of territorial concessions to the Palestinians. Uh, His successor, initially, uh, in the next election, Benjamin Netanyahu, won uh, as a right winger who opposed two states. And then Ehud Barak, who you mentioned, came into office. And Barak revived the peace negotiations, and it really did seem that there was going to be some kind of agreement. There is now immense disagreement as to why these negotiations fell apart, Uh, right? And and there's sort of a lot that hinges on that, uh, but sometimes too much is made of it, right? You know, the specific maps— that were given by one side to the other? Did Arafat make a counterexample? Was Barack acting in good faith? Was Clinton being a fair negotiating uh, mediator? There so all sorts of questions surrounding it, and I don't want to get into them right now. Uh, But the the main and the crucial point here is that the negotiations failed, for whatever reason they failed. And soon afterwards, we entered a decade of violence between Israel and Palestinians, beginning with what's called the Second Intifada, um, the Second Uprising or throwing off Uh, so the Arabic term translates to, was immensely violent, much more so than the first one. Uh, Thousands of people died. Now, more Palestinians died than Israelis, but we're talking about what happened to the Israeli tradition here, so I'm going to focus on that. Uh, For Israelis, this was experienced as a wave of terrorist attacks inside Israel, you know, uh, bus bombings, uh, attacks on discotheques in Tel Aviv, constantly for years. Um, And this, the combination of the second intifada and a growing sense the Palestinians could not be negotiated with. They couldn't, they, they really weren't interested in the state, which was really, really, really entrenched by Hamas's takeover of the Gaza Strip, uh, right? Which it basically, it, it not only won an election, a parliamentary election, but then launched an armed coup against Fatah, the party that ruled the Palestinian Authority, in order to uh, try to cement its control over the PA. And all, all it managed was to take over Gaza. But what that meant. From the Israeli point of view, is the group that was doing all of those bombings, right? The leading Palestinian terrorist faction, from their point of view, was now in charge of a large chunk of the Palestinian population. Uh, They also fought two wars that involved Palestinian militant factions after the Second Intifada uh, at the latter end of the 2000s. So while there were peace negotiations during that time, and some of them came awful close, it was tough, right? It was a tough political climate. And by the end of of the 2000s, it became clear that Israeli public opinion had concluded that the Palestinians were not serious about peace. Again, this may or may not be true. I'm only rendering the the sort of domestic side political explanation for why what has happened inside Israel and where Israelis have moved. And with a two-state solution having withered, the liberal Zionism withered with it, right? It was its central political platform was we can have two states living in peace next to each other. The second that israelis came to believe that this was not a viable means for achieving peace was the second that they came to believe that the vehicles for this idea the ones that the liberal zionist parties that had really made it into the central aim of their their rosan detroit politically right those parties started to hemorrhage support and right-wing parties started to gain it
0: okay so there's a question that comes up as you tell this history that i want to ask you which is about hamas and netanyahu and liberal zionism all three of these things oh boy it seems to me that both hamas and netanyahu's goal their political project or at least their big uh, their 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 shared enemy is the israeli left is liberal zionism and there's been, a, there's been reporting about how uh, Netanyahu has allowed funding for Hamas and the like. But even separating that, it seems to me that Benjamin Netanyahu, the right-wing current prime minister of Israel, although wildly unpopular inside of Israel, but currently through the parliamentary system holding on in his coalition as the prime minister, that he obviously has a political incentive to crush the left. The, the, the Israeli left, liberal Zionism, is his, politi- is his primary domestic political opponent. Hamas similarly seems to have an objective in having there not be a uh, liberal Zionist tradition reaching out to the Palestinians uh, for a two state solution because Hamas maintains its power, its prominence, uh, by being on the far right of domestic Palestinian politics, saying we cannot have any kind of negotiated detente uh, or two state solution with Israel. In fact, as you write, In your piece, quote, Hamas didn't only slaughter innocents in their homes on October 7th. I think this is really important. You write, quote, they deliberately did so on territory that was one of the remaining redoubts of the embattled Israeli left. These border communities with Gaza disproportionately drew Israelis who believed in coexistence with Palestinians and wanted to reach across the Gaza border to find common ground. So my question for you is... Is that a correct way to look at at this situation, aka the the withering of liberal Zionism, the withering of the uh, two-state peace process, that both Hamas and Netanyahu see liberal Zionism and the Israeli left as something that they don't want, the main thing that they don't want?
1: Uh, Yes, there are some caveats there, but the, the basic arc of your narrative is correct. Right? So in the 1990s, it was very clear, or at least it's very clear retrospectively, that the timing of Hamas terrorist attacks were designed – this is before the Second Intifada, when Hamas was still a, still a terrorist group, but just not as – the attacks weren't as high volume. It was very, very clear at that point that they were timing the attacks in order to try to throw a wrench into ongoing peace negotiations and to demonstrate, at least to Israelis, that they could be spoilers for any kind of peace agreement. Right? And Netanyahu, after returning to power in 2009, spent many, many years painting the left as unpatriotic enemies of Israel, unable to preserve our security and that I alone can protect us from all the threats that face us. Right, This was really the centerpiece of his message. And that, that also, interestingly, uh, or maybe depressingly, more accurately, contained a legislative component designed to hamstring the operations of not not exactly left- wing political parties, but the sort of civil society infrastructure that supported the left. So there was there are a variety of different laws that were designed more or less explicitly uh, to make it harder for these groups to operate. groups like Breaking the Silence, uh, which takes the testimony of Israeli soldiers who served in the territories um, and and has shows them to Israelis who most of whom have not, actually, despite universal military service, actually served in the Palestinian territories. Right, so so it's sort of raising awareness of what what goes on there and the the human rights abuses perpetrated in their name. Right, this group was targeted. There was a law passed called the Breaking the Silence Law that was designed to limit their ability to go to, for example, schools uh, to present this kind of information. Right, so a lot of the the illiberal drift in Israel, right, domestically, even setting aside the Palestinian conflict, is fueled by a sense of a sense on Netanyahu's part. That He can crack down on the left not just uh, because they're his enemy, but because he can use them as political scapegoats, right, given the right-wing drift among the Israeli public after the sort of decade of conflict in the 2000s. Sadly, this calculation has appeared to be, or at least for a time, appeared to be largely correct, Uh, right? Hamas had done severe damage on its part to the sort of basic premises of the Israeli left allowing Netanyahu to pick them apart to the point where the the two sort of main left wing parties uh Meretz and Labor right they they barely uh have any political viability or hadn't until potentially very very recently right you know they were barely barely skating by in national elections getting a limited number of representatives and and the opposition for the past few years has not come from the left but really the center Right. What's happened inside Israel is that Likud, which was a center-right party for a long time, has splintered into centrist factions and right-wing factions. And so politicians who maybe would have been Likudniks 20 years ago are now in the opposition against Netanyahu and against Likud uh, because they feel that it's gone too far to the right.
0: Okay, I want to return to the headline of your, your story in Vox, a must read. We will link to it in our description of this episode for, those, for, for listeners to, to read it. The headline is the, the return of liberal Zionism uh, and how the events of October 7th may end up paving the way, quote unquote, paving the way for the resurrection of a seemingly dead political tradition. However, this week, the New York Times has a new story and its headline is, here's the headline, Israelis abandoned the political left over security concerns after October 7th and the story says quote if the left has lost mainstream support Israel's peace camp has been driven virtually underground so i, I guess lay out your argument For why you think after all that we've now reviewed, after all that's happened on October 7th and then this uh, horrific uh, Israeli uh, counteroffensive or really offensive uh, in Gaza uh, with with mass human casualties, lay out your argument for why even if. Uh, In this fog of war, this horrifying fog of war, uh, uh, the the left may be uh, right now even more underground than it's been. Lay out your argument for why you think this may be a pivot point, a hinge moment where we see a revival of the liberal Zionist tradition, Uh, by the way, as distinct from the Netanyahu Zionist uh, 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 ideology. Why do you think a liberal Zionist tradition may be ultimately come out of this?
1: Yeah, look, it's hard to forecast in the future, and there's a reason there's a question mark on that headline, right? Like things <laughs> right, are right. right. Things are. I can't be certain about what I'm about to tell you. There are a few things I can be sure about, and I'll try to be clear on what I'm speculating versus confident in what I'm saying. Uh, but let's start with one of the things that I'm confident about, which is that Netanyahu has suffered a massive political blow from which I think it is uh, very, very unlikely for him to recover. Right? As as we were, I was saying just a second ago. Right? His whole appeal was, "I'm Mister Security." I will protect you. Well, that that didn't work, right? Under his watch, Israel suffered the very worst terrorist attack in the country's history, right? The worst military attack, period, right? Not just from a non state actor, period. Uh, and in terms of, you know, the, the number of casualties in a single day. And that kind of event is so shattering to the politics of a nation that it, it creates an opportunity for a profound rethink of where things are going. Now, in the past, right, the, the, the trauma, Israelis use this word trauma a lot to describe what they've experienced and how they live, right? The, the trauma of the Second Intifada, and the Lebanon War, the Second Lebanon War, the wars of 2008, 2009, 2014, all seem to have pushed Israel uh, to the right and its voters to the right. But what's happening here is, is different, right? In part because the right's been in power for a long time, right? Who, who else can you blame? Literally, oftentimes this is just how politics works, right? When someone's in power for a while, they get blamed for things that are happening and people get upset with them. But on a deeper level, the attack challenged the fundamental premise of the right's approach to security. And By here I mean the mainstream right and and the extreme right to a degree, but it's important to differentiate, right? Like the mainstream right in Israel, their basic idea wasn't we're going to – uh, declare sovereignty over all of the land west of the Jordan River. There were pushes for annexation, but they were primarily driven by the extremes and were not the sort of main project of the mainstream right, who really just wanted to, things to go as they were, right? They believed that in, Hamas could be contained inside Gaza. The Palestinians wouldn't mind if Israel kept bit by bit by bit by bit gobbling up parts of of its land and eroding the possibility of a two-state solution until, uh, you know, by the end of it, there would be no possible way uh, for for that outcome to emerge, which is which is what they wanted. They didn't want to go through the hassle of some kind of massive ideological moment um, where the paradigm changed and Israel might be politically vulnerable by saying, uh, you know, no more, no more two state. We're declaring sovereignty to all of it. They wanted to sort of do it subtly over time and say that the status quo was keeping Israeli state was keeping Israeli safe, and and most Israelis basically what they wanted was to be safe. They wanted to be sure that their government had a handle on the security situation, that things would stay mostly calm or as calm as they could be, and they could live as if they were, I don't know, basically a little European country uh, on the Mediterranean. That that was an illusion, right? You can't escape the conflict in the way that Israel's governments under Netanyahu had been promising ordinary Israelis who do not share the far right's uh, desire to sort of on on religious uh, or extreme nationalist grounds seize control of, of all the land, right? They just want to live in peace um uh, they want to be left alone.
0: Right, so uh, so what you're saying is you what you're saying is that essentially there's this like you know kind of silent majority in Israel if you will. I'm using American terms here, but a silent majority in Israel, it's like look, look, we'll we'll, we'll accept Netanyahu's right-wing government as long as he delivers uh, basic uh physical security. Uh, and, and we're not buying into necessarily uh, his um, or his coalitions, uh, you know, greater Judea religious themed uh, views about, you know, uh, uh, controlling uh, all of the land uh, from the Jordan River. It's just like, listen, if that's the coalition he needs to make uh, in order to keep us uh, safe and having a you know physical security. Great. And that the October 7th attacks essentially shattered that promise it 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 showed the 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 silent majority that that premise was bullshit it can't actually uh, sustain Uh, and so out of that I guess that's why the question mark on your story uh, about is this a, a chance for a hinge point for liberal Zionism that's the question mark and and I would like to believe that that's the case. But I also know, and we know it from our own country. Now they're not the same countries, but that after nine eleven, I mean, George Bush should have been blamed. He didn't get a lot of blame. Now, granted, he, well, he hadn't been in power for twenty years, but the point is, is that you know he 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 went the way we all know nine eleven went, right? And I think Netanyahu's doing that uh, in Gaza. I think the the question beneath uh, all of this is. Not only will does the October seventh attack shatter the formula or the promise that Netanyahu has been making in the minds of of the of the, of the silent majority of uh, of Israelis, but does further the offensive in Gaza do that as well? Because I, I think I I don't know. I, mean, I guess I'd ask it as a question: Like, are how do Israelis? Do we have any data, polling, whatever about how Israelis see? the offensive in gaza do they see that as making israel safer because from my perspective granted an outsider's perspective i'm looking at, i don't think what what israel's doing in gaza is making israel more safe so they do right i would say
1: the the bulk of of israeli jews believe that this operation is likely to achieve its outcome however i don't think they're right uh, right, I I don't I don't, right. I don't neither that. do I. Right. But but that's important. It's important not just like because you and I as American Jews over here can disagree with them. It's important because the concrete results of the offensive will determine what happens politically afterwards. Right? If if the, yes. at the end of this, there's still a Hamas there, right? It's not been destroyed. There's no solution for post-war, which by the way, a majority of Israelis don't believe that Netanyahu has a post-war plan. uh right. it's another thing that I saw in the data. Uh, they're going to be looking for someone to blame, right? For the government not delivering on the promises that it made of destroying Hamas, right? And that someone is going to be Netanyahu. We know it from all of yeah, the Yeah, it's data. like a
0: double whammy, right? It's a double whammy. It's like like you allowed Octo- you, October 7th happened on your watch. You, then you did this big counteroffensive, and at the end of it, doesn't seem like you have a plan, doesn't seem like anything's uh, safer. Hamas is still there, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like Netanyahu's, uh, cha- you know, at the, at the casino yeah. chasing good money after bad, uh, d- doubling down and ultimately it's like, when are these? When is the silent majority of Israel going to wake up and say, "Hey, this entire formula doesn't work." Right, and the polling suggests they
1: already have, but they've moved to the center, right? Like the party that's really gaining a bunch of support right now is National Unity, led by Benny Gantz, who's like a right winger who has some kind of cagey views on two states with the Palestinians. He supported a two state and en- or it's like a he calls it like a two. I forget what the exact phrasing is, but it's not quite two states. It's like two entities. Right in uh, in Israel and the territories next to it, but isn't like can't bring himself to say the word state. But he also has much more moderate views as does his deputy Gadi Eisenkot about the Palestinian, like how Israel should treat Palestinians, whether it should continue a sort of de facto annexation of the West Bank. That means that even that government, uh, like those people, would be better from the point of view of two states. But they also would most likely be at the head of a coalition. That had to answer in part to the liberal Zionist parties, especially given how, you know, you mentioned earlier that, that many of these communities were left wing communities. There are also stories about really heroic, you know, retired left wing generals who went in there and put their own lives on the line in order to save people in the Israeli army because many of them were deployed in the West Bank and were not available to fight in Gaza, right, and the government was slow to respond. So, so these people stepped in, retired, I mean, men in their 60s, right, were there wielding guns and fought off Hamas. And, and one of them um, was a very you know, prominent former leader of Meretz, which is the party to the left of labor on a lot of these issues. And some polling shows that if you combine labor and Meretz, if they run as one party under his leadership, then their numbers would go up significantly uh, in the next election. So even if we're just narrowing our horizons to – a future election, which is likely to happen next year. And even if we can just extrapolate purely from current polling, which we can't, right, because we're in the middle of a war and Israeli public opinion will be shaped profoundly by the war's outcome in addition to what's happening right now, there's evidence suggesting that not just quantitative, but like sort of qualitative read of what's on the ground, evidence that Israelis are looking around for political alternatives. They're not doing the George W. Bush thing where they're starting to, to see the current incumbent leader as sort of a symbol of the nation who needs to be rallied behind regardless right and whose policies can't be questioned right they're really rejecting the way that the current government has approached a lot of different things and that's creating room for political alternatives
0: so when it comes to american jews you write quote when people who claim to stand for uh, those values uh, we're talking about uh, sort of liberal values we're talking about in america when people who claim to stand for those values seem to abandon them in their response to hamas's attack Something in the diaspora Jewish psychology snapped. Scenes like those at an October 8th rally in Times Square promoted by the local Democratic Socialists of America, you write, in which speakers praised Hamas' assault and mocked the Israeli dead, created a profound sense of fear and alienation. And you're talking about among the Jewish community, a Jewish community in America, which has traditionally been a liberal uh, Democratic Party leaning uh, community, but you also write that in response to that snapping, that fear and alienation of seeing um, uh, sympathy for Hamas or uh, uh, solidarity, et cetera, et cetera. You also write that American Jews do not seem also to be rallying around Netanyahu either. Right. It's not like you see a lot of, you know, uh, liberal reform Jewish congregations, you know, uh, with pictures of Netanyahu in the window. Right. So I think the question is, and this is important because where the American Jewish community is, I think, is important in American in American politics, uh, because America is the primary sponsor of Israel and the like. Where do you think the reaction to October 7th? leaves American Jews, the American Jewish community, Uh, it 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 feels like sort of torn between uh, feelings of uh, some uh, sense of um, heritage uh, linkages uh, to Israel, but also uh, disgusted with Netanyahu, a a community that I think has seen liberal Zionism wither away and has sort of turned its face away from Israel, knowing that there are these like, you know, uh, long-standing familial ancestral uh, heritage ties to it, but not knowing really what to do because it's controlled by a right wing government. So where does this leave the American Jewish community? Look, it,
1: there are these very vocal minorities in the American Jewish community, right, on both extremes of the conflict. There's a, There's a very small anti-Zionist uh, part of the American Jewish community real. And I don't want to write them out of the community the way that some people do, right? And to say they're, they're, there's an article Agreed. on tablet that called them un-Jews. I just like, I couldn't. I, yeah, that's like yeah, offensive. offensive. I, I just, I can't I can't put up with stuff like that. Like, it's just not acceptable, right? Then on the other side, there's these sort of Jews need to come home to the right and understand the intersectionality and wokeness are our enemies kind of thing. And that's just not a view that that most American Jews hold, right? It's really just been the case that most American Jews are normal Democrats. It's really normally democrats might even be the more accurate way of putting it right they voted for joe biden in the last election their response to the attacks as far as we can tell has been a decrease in support for for donald trump and the republican party something like eight points measured from uh, by one poll's pre-war baseline uh, right there's not a lot of polling of such a small community in the us so we just we have limited data to go on but that just that's never been the case That even in response to grievous attacks on Israeli security, that the American Jewish community moves right in the way that the Israeli Jewish community moves right. Um, And this is a community that was already really uncomfortable with Netanyahu, right? We haven't talked about the Israeli protests against uh, Netanyahu's judicial overhaul plan. Uh, We haven't talked about that at all yet, but it's a really important part of the story because it showed that there's a real commitment to democracy and certain set of liberal values among Israeli Jews and one that the American Jewish community has really seized upon. There's been a lot, a lot of activity here protesting alongside and in solidarity with the Israelis on this front. So there's sort of a dam opening up about criticizing Israel um, on that kind of issue, even if mainstream Jewish groups still shied away from the Palestinian issue um, in a lot of different cases. So I think what's happening is really just a redoubling of this, this traditional liberal Zionist affect and identity. And like certain groups, like the most notably APAC, which is not really even a Jewish group, even though a lot of people that work there, um, and I think the current head of the ADL, who I don't believe speaks for many people who work at the ADL, when he says that anti-Zionism is always anti-Semitic, uh, which is just a, a wildly extreme position. Which I don't think, based on the data I've seen, reflects the view that many Jews have. Even though they may mostly be Zionists, they're liberal Zionists who don't who think that you can criticize Israel even during wartime. Um, and that that ethos has survived through the war, right? It it remains intact. What I don't know is what's going to come out of that afterwards, right? Is there going to be renewed energy and money and attention going into the sort of traditional pro peace groups like like Americans for Peace Now uh, or J Street? Uh, that that work on this issue in DC? I don't know. That's a possible outcome. But what I do know is that a lot of people in the American Jewish community are feeling both really, really upset about the way that the politics is playing out here, and also heartbroken at what's happening both to Israelis and Palestinians. And that sort of liberal universalistic sensibility is profoundly important for the community
0: here. So that's a good segue to this question about liberal Zionism and anti-Zionism. Looking ahead, knowing what you know reporting on what you what you report on do you believe liberal zionism is necessary to a two-state solution or some sort of solution that satisfies israeli and palestinian uh, desires for security peace and prosperity or do you think anti-zionism is a more productive political force to achieve that or something different right i i, I i'm hmm. what i'm trying to what i'm trying to get at here is that there there is liberal zionism that isn't happy with with netanyahuism and what's going on over in israel uh, and there is anti-zionism that is not happy with netanyahu and what is going on over in israel the question is knowing what we know about american politics israeli politics etc cetera, etc cetera, what do you think is the is is the more necessary, productive political force to get to something that is more positive than where we are now,
1: so uh, I want to separate out this by by different places, not just places and subgroups in those places, right? Because it's important when you talk about these things to talk about, to talk specifically, not just in generalities. In Israel, I think that liberal Zionism is a necessary component, full stop period of any kind of just and uh, fair settlement of the conflict. The reason I think that is that, while liberal Zionism may be embattled in Israel, Jewish anti-Zionism basically does not exist. It is a right. very, 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 very minuscule percentage of Israelis who get outsized voice in, in American politics because they reflect, you know, are trying to reflect the full spectrum of views. But there are almost no Israelis who think that. Because what that would mean, right, in effect, would be dissolving Israel as a country. Right. And Israelis are not only scared of the practical consequences of what would happen. For legitimate reason, like, what do you do, integrate Hamas into the IDF as like a kind of shared binational fighting force? Like the the, tech, the technical questions here and the political ones are even more complicated than those involved in a, in a difficult two-state solution. But since, since Israelis won't do that, they also won on principle grounds. They believe in, in a Jewish state. They believe in their government. They care about it. They like it. They're patriots. And just asking them to abolish their government, it's not a feasible ask. Right. And the, the smartest Israeli peace activists will, will tell you this when you talk to them about it. Right. That's why they're still, despite everything, mostly two staters. The question is more complicated when it comes to outside activism. Right. Because then it's less of a it's less of a sort of principle question. Right. Because really the deciders here are Israelis. They're the most powerful party to the conflict. Um, and while Palestinian agreement is necessary, Israel can do a lot already to change the, the facts on the ground to make things more conducive for a Palestinian mm-hmm. peace agreement. But, but internationally, it's much more complicated, because you'd make a very good case that anti-Zionist activism rising in the United States is much scarier uh, to Israelis than, say, a sort of re, re-engagement of the American Jewish community with liberal Zionism, uh, and that them being more scared might put more pressure on them to make concessions, or would it cause them to retrench more? And to see, hey, we can't trust these people. Uh, we're just going to retreat to our own kind of internal right-wing politics focused on self-reliance and self-care. I've heard some people on the extreme Israeli right argue for rejecting American aid on these grounds, right? They want to start building their own weapons so they don't have to rely on the U.S. for resupply and have an avenue of, of American pressure that they could otherwise avoid. So that's a complicated question. And, and one thing I would never, by the way, never, never asked or expect is for Palestinians to identify as any kind of Zionist right, that asking for Palestinians who, who are involved in struggles for their own freedom to have to identify Zionists as a starting point for being a, a sort of good faith actor on this issue is absolutely impossible, much as you can't expect Israelis to be anti-Zionists. You can't expect Palestinians or Palestinians abroad in their diaspora to identify with a movement that they felt has dispossessed and colonized their home. No, they can still support a two-state solution while being, in principle, anti-Zionists, Right? or they can even support a one state solution and put pressure on it that's productive towards in my view the only possible solution which is two states but 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 we we can't no one no reasonable person can expect that community to to start embrace liberal zionism or any other kind of zionism so it, it when you say which one is better it sort of depends on context right i think that it, in israel it's it's liberal zionism is the only alternative to illiberal zionisms elsewhere different story
0: so that is a good segue to the final question I have which is goes back to this tension between liberal Zionism and democracy and you and I say it's a good segue because you mentioned the idea of a one state binational solution it seems to me a one state binational solution which, which I'll put solution in quotes seems Like, yeah, if you could wave a wand and change minds and remove all the context, all the history, all the horrible history, maybe that would be maybe that would work. But I live in the here and now. It doesn't seem to me a one state binational solution is really a solution. It seems like a canard, a talking point uh, to 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 kind of gum up a, a discussion about the here and now. However, There is this tension between liberal Zionism and democracy that the belief in a Jewish state with liberal democratic values, a democracy in in theory can't be a a homeland for one or another predetermined people, community or religion because a democracy is self-determination, self-governance by the people who are there. I think the question I, I, I would ask you is: This inherent tension between liberal Zionism and democracy—is it surmountable? I mean, I'm asking you a hundred-year question here, right? That liberal Zionists have have gone back and forth, but he, in the here and now, for people who want a two-state solution, for people who understand that Israel exists, it's going to exist at least in the here and now. Uh, it's not going anywhere for people who want in that context, a two state solution is, are are the, are the tensions inside of liberal Zionism too, too tense Mm -hmm. to surmount over the long haul?
1: Now, I don't think they are, but I first want to start with the in principle reason why not. And then I want to go to the, the practical politics. Here it's helpful to look at the writing from Aharon Barak, you know that famous Israeli Supreme Court justice who came up with the term constitutional revolution, right? When he described his vision of Jewish and democratic, he understood the Jewish identity of the state to mean not a religious one, but and I quote, the sense that Jews have a right to immigrate here and that their national experience is that of the state, by which he means you use Hebrew as the official language, you make Jewish holidays official holidays. Uh, and, and Jews can have preferential immigration rights, in part to reflect the history of Jewish persecution abroad. But he argued that that what a Jewish state meant right in terms of, let's say, official impositions of religion or restrictions of minority rights, none of those things were compatible with what he understood a Jewish and democratic state to be. If the Jewish component is the sort of official Jewishness and serving as a place of refuge for Jews persecuted abroad— The values of Judaism, as he puts it, are the values of love of humanity, sanctity of life, social justice, doing what is good and just, protecting human dignity, the rule of the lawmaker, and other such eternal values, right? And that democracy requires full equality among all its citizens and recognition of basic human and civil rights. To me, that seems like a very clear answer to the question of what does it mean to have a state that's both Jewish and democratic, that is meaningfully both, right? And theoretically, I see no problem with sort of as a matter of political philosophy with Barack's idea. The real barrier is is practical politics, right? There are lots of different constituencies inside Israel. The ultra-nationalist right hates the idea of Arab equality. The ultra-Orthodox can't stand the notion uh, that they should have to participate as equals in Israeli society and not be able to impose their own will uh, when it comes to sort of the nature of the state and rules about who can get married, for example, uh, legally on anyone else. Those are real struggles for Israel. They're really, 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 really difficult, and they're not going to be resolved in the short term, right? And they're they're linked in many ways, not fully, but they're linked with the fate of the Palestinian conflict. So the, the fight to make Israel resemble the state that Harun Barak described that's as you said that's that's a hundred year fight, much in the prospect of making, much in the way that making the United States into the country that it is now took hundreds of years when compared to what Israel was founded in, in 1948, right? Like, compared to the United States before it had turned 100, uh, was a profoundly different place than it is today. Um, so Israel has the capacity to change. If the U.S. can get rid of slavery, Israel can can transform its own identity and its own under self-understanding. But that's a struggle that can only play out in the context of a democratic state, of Israel maintaining its basic democratic rights and not turning into some kind of authoritarian monster that that can't envision separating itself from the military regime that exists in the Palestinian territories. And that that insight at the heart of liberal Zionism, I think, is is what I find attractive, even though I don't know if I would call myself after just spend all this conversation, I don't know if I would use the term liberal Zionist to describe my own views. Calling myself a Zionist of any kind feels odd as an American citizen, right? It just feels weird. But I do think that there's this profound insight at the heart of a liberal Zionist, tradition that, that I don't want to be lost, encapsulated in ideas like Barack's in its real uh, sort of penetrating criticism of the occupation and its effect on Israeli democracy. And and yeah, I, there's there's a lot there of value, and I hope it can win out in the end. I can't prophesy that it will, but I can say that it should have a fighting chance.
0: Zach Beecham is a journalist and a senior correspondent as, at Vox. His article is a must-read. Please read the article if you haven't already. It's linked in the, uh, uh, the podcast description. The article is headlined, The Return of Liberal Zionism. And there's a question mark on it, just to re- reiterate that. And the subhead is, for many Jews, the October 7th attacks discredited both the Zionist right and the anti-Zionist left, paving the way for the resurrection of a seemingly dead political tradition. Zach, thank you so much for writing that piece, and thank you so much for taking the time with us today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, David. This was really great.
0: That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium, you get to hear our bonus episodes. There's a great one on the bonus feed right now, a fascinating discussion about how big tech companies are using all sorts of ways to steal your attention and then monetize it. To listen to LeverTime Premium, just head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. When you do, you get access to all of Lever's premium content, including our weekly newsletters and our live events. And that's all for just eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor, please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Levertime on your favorite podcast app. The app you are listening to right now, take 10 seconds and give us a positive review in that app. And make sure to check out all of the incredible reporting our team has been doing over at LeverNews.com. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. The Lever Time Podcast is a production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, David Sirota. Our producer is Frank Capello with help from Lever producer Jared Jacang Mayer.